Welcome back to the 129th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how progressives didn't actually ruin San Francisco, and it was really Republicans, how Biden has relieved so much student debt, and how he went about it, and how it may not be okay, but he did it anyway, And, of course, our final article will be about Donald Trump winning the South Carolina primary. No shock. It'll be a quick one. Just want to highlight a few of the comments. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, there's obviously a very specific narrative around a lot of liberal cities If you are a person on the right, if you're a person that's moderate, or even if you are a Democrat and you're not a progressive, you may have heard these narratives through any of the normal streams that you get your media, and you may have imbibed them, you may have listened, and you may have agreed, disagreed. Uh, Tell me what you think about all these different stories that you're hearing from large cities. Is it just that there's more people, so of course you're going to have more incidences? Is it going to be that the media knows they can focus on it to get a few clicks and that? That's why, or is there actually something going on here, and is this author a little bit crazy? Uh, We Give your opinion. We'll see what the author has to say here in a second, but I want to hear your opinion first. So, our first article comes from Common Dreams. Headline reads, No progressives didn't ruin cities like San Francisco. So, that's that's a pretty bold claim to work off of, mainly because... San Francisco and the other cities that will be mentioned, but mainly San Francisco, has been under, if not definitely liberal control, or at least a majority liberal representation in most of the local politics, even some progressives as well. Uh, This includes their attorney general, or sorry, their attorney general, their local prosecutors that are DA, and then their district attorney excuse me for using the wrong terminology, as well as some of the local politicians. And there's lots of progressive activists that want their voices to be heard. They're loud, they're proud, they're out there representing their point of view in local politics. So to say that, one, the problem isn't actually caused by the people in power, and two, that No, no, while they've been in power, we may have seen this very specific uh, downfall, uh, but no, 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 that definitely wasn't us that entire time. And they're basically the same claim, but framed a little bit differently, because you can say, oh, well, the people in power didn't have uh, the actual influence that they they could have had. So then saying, hey, it's not the people in power that are actually doing this, that's one claim. And the other one is, well, yeah, even while these people were in power and putting in place policies and we saw a decline during that same period, that, that doesn't mean it's a one-to-one correlation, which is a very fair point. Yes, that does not mean just because a politician gets in and something happens doesn't mean that it is their fault. Donald Trump got into the presidency, and then he had COVID happen to him, and it hurt the economy. That's not all on Donald Trump. He could have responded a certain way. That's not all on Donald Trump. Just like when Joe Biden comes into the presidency with uh, you know, a, a little bit of a recovering economy, but still stalling out. There's still a few supply chain issues. And then, you know, Putin decides to invade Ukraine. 
maybe people would argue there's something he could do about it or could have prevented some of those things, you know, helped along the process. But that doesn't mean that it is all 100% his fault. How he chooses to respond to all those things, how Donald Trump chooses to respond to all those things, how these progressives in San Francisco decide to respond to all these things, that is their responsibility. Anything that is born of that can be their fault and can be laid at their feet. So the author, he's really making a large, large claim here that he's really, really going to have to back up. And I think that this is the opening paragraph, well, second paragraph, but the one where he starts actually talking about some of the issues. And these are some of the things that he highlights as being amazing for San Francisco. Quote, the city by the bay has been a national leader on living wages, universal health care, criminal justice reform, until recently, and LGBTQ plus rights. But the city has a lesser-known conservative streak that is now mightily resurgent as deep-pocketed reactionary political forces aim to overhaul San Francisco politics by weaponizing homelessness, drug addiction, the crime to fuel election-year fear-mongering about urban cities or urban crisis. So, yes, okay, what he's kind of laying out here is actually it's we're a leader in all these things and some of the other things they're kind of fear-mongering about them they're not as bad as they say they are or at least that seems to be how he's framing it because they're fear-mongering about it that's very specific language they're you know showing the images a little bit too much and they're trying to rile up people's fear which you know they're doing it in a kind of disingenuous way that's what fear-mongering is but then he does go on to talk about how, no, actually, um, a lot of these things are just natural to San Francisco. They're 100% here, and how we've decided to deal with them is what is important. And I thought there was one very specific quote that <laughs> the author kind of highlights and kind of calls out, and there's another one that I also want to talk about, that they, they point something out, and they think they're making a good point, and I think, honestly, they're kind of missing what the person they're trying to undercut here is trying to say. Quote, at a public safety forum last December, attorney Brooke Jennings told a televised audience that homeless people have to be made uncomfortable. This stunningly Orwellian moment merits repetition. And he goes on to repeat the quote. And he's saying, wow, okay, look at this. A elected official is saying that these people that are down on their luck should be told that, or at least should be made uncomfortable. And maybe you're taking it out of context, maybe not. But even then, actually think about what he's saying there. What he's saying there is, we do not want these people to stay in our streets, to put up encampments, so on and so forth. I'm assuming that's the context because, I mean, let's be clear. If you're going out against homelessness, it's probably going to be something to the effect of we don't want these people here. And in order to get rid of them, you have to make them uncomfortable. You can't make their lives easier. If you make someone who's homeless their lot make their lives easier then they're going to stay if you don't go and say hey i need you to move your tent from this location this needs to be a walking area you can't just leave it here on the side of the street or hey this overpass it could flood out we we're worried about your safety whatever excuse you want to use if you don't make life hard they're just going to stay there i mean i've gone to new orleans 
And if you go underneath the underpass, uh, right there next to the convention center, yeah, no, there's a whole bunch of uh, tents just piled up underneath the, uh, the giant bridge. And it's, I've been there twice, three times in the last, no, twice in the last at least three months. And the, I'm not saying it's the same tents because I'm not that observant, but they're in the exact same place. They haven't been moved out. They're just allowed to stay there. So if you don't, if you don't make them uncomfortable, they're not going to leave. And then the next quote kind of gives another perspective because the author tries to break down this quote from somebody else. And I think they're coming at it from a very particular point of view that doesn't allow them to see the points that these people are making, or at least not willing to hear them out. Uh, quote, a few months earlier, a chaotic outdoor city supervisors meeting near a block known for intense drug use dealing with, quote, compassion is killing people. So that's a quote from Mayor uh, John Breeds. And the author goes on to say, quote, compassion is what's killing people, not poverty, trauma, abuse, inequality, and nationwide shortages of affordable housing and tr treatment facilities. And guess what? Yeah, all of those points are 100% valid. All of those points are things that suck and do, and they do kill people. And I'm not saying all of them are probably as bad as to the extent the author thinks they are. But my point being that, yeah, all those things can be true. But also, if you make a location where it is okay to set up your housing, that is, you know, in the public space, your housing happens to be a tent or you're just sleeping on the side of the streets and you can't actually clear those people out. You can't say, hey, no, we need you to find actual housing for tonight. We're going to make your life hard so you can't just sleep on the streets. You have to try to find uh, a job or at least some sort of benefit to clean yourself up, get a job so you can actually have proper housing so you're not going to be out here possibly freezing to death doing drugs because in the homelessness community, drugs is a escape. I personally know this. I actually have a family member who is in San Francisco, and there was a conversation when one of my family members found him. Hey, are you ready to come home yet? You want to come home? And though I can't speak to what his mindset is, he this person did, the family member did say no. I, I can't speak to why, but I can tell you now the cost did not outweigh the benefits in his mind. The costs were not high enough. They were still comfortable. They were being at least uh, treated as though it wasn't a problem and that they should just be allowed to keep on moving their homeless encampments and not be kicked out altogether. And the compassion that you're trying to say, hey, we need to allow these places to exist. Are you going, if your children walked into a preschool and the preschool community, the teacher's in there doing drugs, he's letting the kids do all the, eat all the candy that they want, they can even have a, a little bit of the fun stuff on the side, whatever you want to perceive as fun stuff, and the community, the mindset of the people that your child is around is, hey, do drugs, or do this thing that is bad for you. And it's totally permissible. The teacher's just going to let you continue to do it. They're going to say, oh, but that's what they want to do. It's compassionate. Let them do what they want to do. They're not, they're not hurting anybody else. They're only hurting themselves. They're making their own free choices. Whatever argument you want to go with, that compassion, that feeling of, oh, yeah, no, I don't want to interfere. I want to, I want to let them be free-spirited. That compassion that is sitting in the heart 
is going to kill them. It is going to cause them damage. And even if it's just sugary treats, okay, in the kindergarten classroom, when you get out into the real world, when you get out into the homeless problem in San Francisco, drugs are rampant in these communities. And yes, guess what? There's great resources to stop fentanyl overdoses. There's also new things like Trank Dope, which we don't necessarily know how to respond to because uh, Trank, which also is cut into the fentanyl, is not necessarily... Uh, doesn't necessarily have the the same effects and when you try it's not it's more of a sedative than it is a depressant so when people that are responding try to use the same uh, treatment which would be narcan for fentanyl overdoses it doesn't actually work and that yes i understand that is a limited example but my point being if you have a place where it's okay where dirty cut drugs can be facilitated and given to a whole bunch of people and it can spread around the community, they're sharing needles, whatever, and then you don't necessarily always have the ability to get to those people and help them out, you are going to deal with more deaths. And your compassion to let that community, which is obviously harming themselves, keep on going is going to cause more deaths. Now, if you want to have a principled argument about whether or not those people should be allowed to do drugs uh, and you know hurt themselves, guess what? You're not going to hear much complaint from me. You're not going to, hey, if you want to do that to yourself, that is your choice. I understand addiction is a, a problem. Um, I understand addiction is actually more of something that is physical and it is not all mental. So choice is a hard word to use there, but there's still there's still resistance that you can have. You can still, if you really want to change your situation, you want to get out of it, you can go to some treatment centers, even though the author does point out that treatment centers are not as uh, prolific as they, they should be, and they're prob- they're very expensive. But there are definitely treatment centers that uh, do it so that, hey, you go in and get a treatment, and then for the rest of 10 years or however long it takes, they take a certain cut of the job that they place you in in order to pay back the debt for your your treatment. So there are lots of different options there, but that's that's a different conversation. That's about the principle of whether you should be able to do that or not. But I also don't think that you should be able to simply uh, set up on public lands and interfere with the flow of traffic because you're actually violating somebody else's rights when you do that. Because guess what? My tax dollars also go to that curb that you're sitting. If I'm in San Francisco, I'm not. So I'm not going to pretend like, oh, yeah, my tax dollars. But if I was in San Francisco, my tax dollars would go towards the public infrastructure. And if you're exploiting that and getting in my way so I can't actually access it or use it, you are violating the contract that we have made in a society where we've both given up a little bit of our rights in order to facilitate a good world, a good society where we can interact with one another. And that's, I feel like the author, when they're both pointing out both of these comments, they are missing these key ideas. They're saying, no, no, hey, we just need to address, we can't necessarily stop the problem, but we need to address it. And the author does go on to talk about some things on how to address it. But this first part is all about, okay, sure, progressives may have done some things that are, aren't the best for these problems, but our solutions are ways that we address these problems are much more compassionate and they treat these people like human beings. And that's what we need to care about, which is once again, a valid point of view. I just feel as though they're missing the other person's, the other people's point of view. And they're saying like, oh, no, no, hey, you're just heartless. It's like, 
okay, maybe they are heartless, but they also have family members that they want to worry about. They want to see San Francisco thrive. They want to see more businesses come back. They want to see previous neighborhoods that have gone under be revitalized. Like it doesn't just have to be, oh, they're, they're selfish. They could be thinking about the entire city and having it facilitate a good social environment where people can thrive, and this is not conducive to that. So maybe they're being more compassionate grand scale, which I don't necessarily, I wouldn't attribute it to all of them. Some of them are probably very selfish, but guess what? Just because someone is very selfish and somebody else is very compassionate, it doesn't mean one of you is better or worse simply on that. Uh, you know, if you're selfish and you use that as justification to do something morally wrong, then yeah. Or if you're compassionate and you use that as a justification to do something morally wrong, then yeah, one of the people is worse or better. But those different perspectives, the way of living your life, uh, whether you want to be a compassionate person, a selfless person, or a selfish person, it doesn't inherently make you bad or good. It's what you do with it. So that's a, that's enough on that one. Now you could see it got my, my blood boiling a little bit. Um, the author does go on, and I, I actually, before we move on, I do want to at least talk about some of the arguments or at least the solution that the author posits, which is, oh, hey, we need to have more affordable housing. We need to have more uh, eviction lockouts. So basically, hey, you can't actually evict people that aren't paying their bills, or we need to have more uh, rent-locked apartments, this sort of thing. Let me ask a question about rent lock and evictions. So if the current going rate for the place you're at is $700. And as long as you live there, it will have to be $700. And we hit a big period of inflation, like the last few years. That's 4%. So then, okay, actually, I'm going to adjust the numbers to make it easy for the math. So we have a rent that is $1,000. And then guess what? Inflation for the year is about 4%. So that means that even though you are still paying $1,000, the person that is renting it out to you, maybe the costs around them for electricity, maintenance, other things, goes up by about 4%. So in terms of purchasing power, they are actually getting money that is worth, instead of the $1,000 that you pay, in purchasing power, it's actually, it's more realistically, like $960. And then let's say, okay, hey, you know, not a crazy inflation year, but inflation still happens on a yearly basis. The U.S. government has a policy of somewhere around 2%, so let's assume that's the case. So then you have that 960 in purchasing power, and then you multiply that by 0.98, and oh, guess what? Now it's $9,941, basically. So you can see here in purchasing power, even though you're still paying the exact same amount of rent, the purchasing power keeps diminishing. Basically what that money can actually buy on the um, homeowner or the landlord's side. So they actually start losing money, even though they're getting the same amount of income coming in. So you can see how price locking is going to eventually force them to stop having those housing uh, buildings and it's going to cause a housing crisis or at least it's going to force out that landlord and then they may have to be cooperated by the state. It may be bought out by somebody else who then is able to negotiate a new contract. Why not just let the market decide? Why not just let the owner say, hey, okay, I know that inflation's going to happen so instead of charging a thousand for the place this year, I'll, I'll charge you 
a thousand dollars and twenty. Uh, sorry, a thousand twenty dollars. Oh yeah, that that is actually gonna, you know, it's gonna pace with inflation. You're not actually stripping that much uh, away from either party because in purchasing power terms, it is exactly the same. Now it may feel like a bit more of a crunch if your wages don't go up, if your wages don't pace with inflation. But is $20 extra really that much? I mean, is, is it really? And I do understand there are different factors. Like, oh, hey, the average cost of a apartment around this area went up a little bit. So maybe there are other things like that. But that's how the market works. And unfortunately, who's going to be out? Who do you want to be out? The person that is offering housing at a price that some people can afford? Or do you want the person who is you know, paying that rent and has the ability to move other places, doesn't have that hard locked-in asset where, okay, well, hey, that landlord is hard for them to move. They would have to sell the entire building. Uh, they're a crucial part about bringing people into your economy and having this more low-end spectrum of the workforce that has to rent out apartments. Would you rather they go or the person that can just move to another city at a whim because at the end of the day, they are a resource just like anybody else too many companies, corporations, uh, they are young more than likely, so they have at least the ability to offer their physical labor. I mean, when you do that calculation, I think it, it becomes pretty obvious which one you would want to keep in your city. But hey, that, you know, I'm I'm definitely not a compassionate person, apparently. So maybe I just don't see the big picture. And then also the other one about uh, keeping evicted people or people that could, should be evicted, getting rid of it. Um, well, how could you ever actually get them out if they're not paying anything and there's a restriction on evictions? No matter how loose it is, there's always going to be some wiggle room for that person to take advantage of. So do you want to screw the landlords or do you want to make it more uncomfortable or more realistic for the people that are renting? Uh, I think you want to make it a little bit more realistic for the people that are renting and not screw over the people that have already invested in your community by purchasing land and renting out some of those spaces. But, you know, maybe maybe I'm just too cold-hearted. Maybe I'm just not compassionate enough. That That's fair. That's fair. So let's jump to our second article that comes from National Review. This one will be a, a pretty quick one because you've heard the talking points before, and I went a little bit over on the San Francisco one. But like I said, it was really boiling my blood. I read it this morning and I said, oh, hey, immediately, this is going to be, I had some other story, another story put in. I was like, no, no, we're talking about this one right here, right now. So from National Review, the headline reads, Biden, Biden, student loans, one dirty trick after another. So yeah, you, uh, you've heard the quotes where Biden said, the Supreme Court wouldn't let me do this but we pursued a different way. And I was like, okay. Um, the commentators on the right really love that quote. They're like, oh, so they told you it was illegal to do this, so, but you did it anyway. And I, you know, if I'm giving Joe Biden the benefit of the doubt, um, the one way he tried to do it was said to be illegal. So then he tried to find a different way to do it. He wasn't saying, okay, no, Supreme Court, um, what you're trying, what are you... <laughs> Supreme Court, what you're trying to deny me from doing, I know you said it's legal, but I'm going to continue to do it anyway. It was a little bit of a different way around it, a little bit of a, a different scheme going through two different bills uh, or going through the education department at one point 
which has a, a clause in one of the regulations that it passed that it actually could cancel student debt. So there's lots of different ways of looking at it. So yeah, I feel like that's a little disingenuous from some people who are talking about it. That doesn't mean that I want student loans to be forgiven with my tax dollars. Don't get me wrong. But my point being, the conversation has been very hazy by both sides because the one side that doesn't like the idea of taxpayer dollars going to paying off other people's debts is saying, no, look at this. This is proves our talking point. And the other side who just wants to either be kind or they're trying to win over a certain political block for the next election, they kind of skim over the details and say, look, ah, student debt relief. Oh, yeah. I mean, it may have been called illegal and we may be fighting multiple lawsuits that don't actually allow it. But look, we're doing it. We're doing it. So (laughs) you can see how this has just become a, a cluster, so to speak. And it's been dragged on so long that it has lost some of its political relevance in that it doesn't headline stories as much anymore. So when I saw this one from National Review, I was very, very interested. So here's the part where they say the Supreme Court has basically called it a a no-go. Quote, the Supreme Court has already said what hardly needs to be said, namely that the president does not have any authority to wipe out loan debts to the government. Of course, that doesn't matter to Biden and his handlers. The rule of law must never be allowed to get in the way of something politically popular. And there's a few different people who were calling out Joe, you know, big boy Uncle Joe. They were making some statements, quote, in a New York Post column, James Bovard calls a foul on Biden's blatantly political shenanigans. He writes, the beneficiaries of this last decree will receive a personal email from Uncle Joe. And it says, I hope this relief gives you a little more breathing room. I've heard from countless people who have told me that relieving the burden of their student debt, student loan debt, will allow them to support themselves and their families, buy their first house, start a small business, and move forward with life plans they have put on hold. And hey, you know, that that's a good point. All of those things are true. It definitely sounds like a campaign speech to me. It sounds like a campaign slogan. And it's very interesting that as we're getting closer to election year, as we're basically in a general at this point, these sort of messages are going out. And the question that some Republicans are asking, which may be legitimate, is can the president not only forgive the debt, but then also use money and taxpayer resources to send out those emails like that. Now, hey, if the email has pertinent information in it, like this is exactly how much is going to be taken off, this is how the process will be, this is where you put in an application, maybe that's a little bit different. But this definitely top part, if he's just sending that, it really does sound like a campaign slogan. And is he allowed to use taxpayer dollars in order to... Uh, do these sort of campaign things. It's actually an interesting one. I don't know when this, because the Secret Service has to go with it practically everywhere. Does the campaign have to reimburse the Secret Service so that it's not using taxpayer dollars to protect the president because then that could be a campaign cost? That's an interesting one. I'm going to do a little bit more research on that one as well. But it definitely sounds like a email that you would send out to people that you want to vote for you. So... But that's enough on that one. That's why the controversy is all happening again. If you see it going on, you see the talking points, you'll at least be semi-informed. So let's jump to our last article, which, to be honest, 
it's not really a necessary article. It's going to be a pretty darn quickie. And this one comes from Fox News. Democrats react to Trump GOP primary victory in South Carolina. He's in a weak position. That's a quote from somebody who they are, uh, I don't want to say making fun of, but they're at least highlighting here on Fox News. Quote, several Democrats took to social media Saturday night to poke fun at former President Donald Trump following his victory in South Carolina primary election, with some even encouraging his last major GOP rival to stay in the race, Nikki Haley. And, you know, when you hear all these different pundits saying, hey, yes, Nikki Haley, stay in, when you hear Gavin Newsom say, she is actually one of the best advocates. She's out there saying some of the things that Democrats should be saying. She's actually making good points. She's fighting him from within the party. Uh, yeah, all, all good things. And you can see why some Democrats are like, yes, Haley, I want you to stick it out. I want you to keep on fighting, sister. I want you to make it harder for your party to get elected in November. Oh, wait, hold on. Did I say that part out loud? Oh, I mean, Nikki, no, you're doing a great job. Keep keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't, don't listen to that last part. Definitely not. Um, yeah, so at the end of the day, Nikki Haley, uh, I'm sorry. I've said this. I've done multiple videos on this. Uh, not only do I not necessarily like some of her positions, uh, not saying she's terrible, not saying she is the devil incarnate, like some people are saying, not saying that, oh, got to completely throw her out of everything, you know, make her pers persona non grata within the Republican Party, whatever, not saying any of that sort of stuff. Just like I would never say that, hey, you need to make Bernie uh, persona non grata within the Democratic Party when he was challenging Biden, he wouldn't really give it up, or same thing with Marianne Williamson, then again, she's already persona non grata, or how they made Dean Phillips persona non grata. Uh, I think they don't need to make him persona, I think they shouldn't make him persona non grata. They should look at him and say, thank you, Dean, for actually challenging us to reevaluate and maybe pull us back to the center a little bit now that there's somebody else at least out there on the campaign trail, which is ironic because you also have Chank Uger doing the same thing, trying to pull him more progressive. So I would never say anybody, hey, just because you're staying in the race, oh, you're undercutting somebody, blah, 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 you need to be put down. I would never endorse that sort of language that comes out from certain people. Um, but she doesn't have a chance. She needs to get out. She needs to get out. There's not any reason to stay in. You're not going to win. And yes, 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 yes. Hey, I understand. I understand. The indictments may come in. They may make him completely unpalatable. And maybe there is a last second change that needs to be done. And if you're still running on the ticket, then you can kind of get away with it. I think that she'll have the momentum at that point. And she'll basically say, hey, I stayed in this whole time. You guys, the other guys who just suspended their campaign, which means technically they could get back in if they wanted to. Uh, you guys, you guys left. I've been here trudging out the whole time. I think that would be a good argument for sure. But I just, I don't see her having a chance anyway. And I don't see her having a good chance against Joe Biden either. So I think there needs to be some serious reevaluation here. And uh, the story about Trump winning the primary, we knew it was going to happen. Haley, going to stick it out, going to keep on fighting, probably not going to leave whatsoever. You know what? Good for her calling this. She is a strong person who believes in her message and she's going to keep on fighting. Good for her. 
I, I think she should get out. I don't see a point, but good for her. She's sticking to her convictions. So let's jump to our final article that comes from Live Science with the headline, Watch a Rare Pink Albino Elephant Baby playing by a waterhole in adorable footage. And, uh, you know, that last part, adorable footage. Yeah, yeah, I can agree. I can agree. It's pretty, it is pretty darn adorable footage. There's no doubt about that. So I'll read one little extra quote, and then I'm not going to say too much, so you can actually go and read it yourself. Quote, elephants are typically gray, but this small calf, which belongs to the genus Laxodonta, sorry if I mispronounced that, I probably put a little bit too much Spanish spin on it, honestly, because it's actually Latin, uh, has pink skin and fair hair as a result of an inherent condition called albinism, a genetic disorder that stops the production of molecule, the molecule called melanin that is responsible for their pigment in their eyes, their hair, and their skin. And you can see this little guy in the video playing around with some of the other uh, elephant babies. And you know, normally the idea is, oh, some albinos get left behind because they are a hindrance to the rest of the herd or... They can't necessarily protect themselves. They can't camouflage. But no, this guy is totally accepted. The two little baby uh, elephants are just kind of goofing around together. So if you want to see this cute video or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, uh, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine. And the Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.